This episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast, is brought to you in partnership with Thermo Fisher Scientific. Thermo Fisher's cell therapy processing instruments are designed to help customers transition from process development to commercial manufacturing, utilized as standalone devices or integrated as part of a closed modular process. Thermo Fisher Scientific recommends Gibco CTS DynaSelect Magnetic Separation System, which is a next-gen cell isolation and activation instrument. Gibco CTS Xenon Electroporation System allows customers full control to optimize for a variety of cell types and payloads. And Gibco CTS Rotea Counterflow Centrifugation System is a closed cell processing system supporting a broad range of protocols for cell separation, washing, and concentration. Customers can rely on and streamline their drug development process with Applied Biosystems Qualtrac qPCR and dPCR quality control tools for robust and reliable genetic analysis across various phases of drug development, supported by relevant, compliant documentation. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Harris, and my guest for this episode is Dr. Shankar Ramaswamy, CEO and co-founder of Kriya Therapeutics, a Palo Alto-based end-to-end gene therapy company with a fully integrated pipeline, which we will get into in just a second. But before we do, Shankar, welcome. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about Kriya the why behind it, what you're working on today. Sure. Um, so at Crea, we're really focused on taking gene therapy to uh, more prevalent diseases, making gene therapy a part of mainstream medicine. And that's in a nutshell what we're all about here at Crea. Maybe just I'll, I'll give you some background on why we started the company and how we got to where we are. And I'm sure we'll get into that in the podcast. Um, you know, we are uh, really enthusiastic about what gene therapies can do for patients. And we've seen some really tremendous successes over the past few years, bringing gene therapies to ultra rare disease patients uh, and delivering curative outcomes for these patients across, you know, rare forms of blindness, uh, spinal muscular atrophy, more recently hemophilia B, which is great. I think when we reflect on what are the main limitations that are constraining the evolution of gene therapy to a much broader universe of patients, it really comes down to a number of operational and technical factors that we aim to solve here at Korea. And the ultimate goal is to deliver this technology of gene therapy to a much broader universe of patients across multiple different therapeutic areas where biology is well understood and where we think gene therapy as a technology can make a big difference to those patients. So in a nutshell, that's uh, what we're all about. Uh, Korea, just a fun fact, is um, actually a Sanskrit word for action. And my co-founders and I, when we started the company back in 2019, uh, you know, we wanted to take action to really unlock the full potential of gene therapy. Many of us, uh, my, one of my co-founders, Dr. Fraser Wright, have been in this field for decades, and we felt this is the opportune time to really bring this entire modality to mainstream medicine. So it's a little bit of background. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And uh, thank you too for explaining the, the meaning of the name. We do have sometimes um, my guests will give the why behind the name and where it came from. And so that's really exciting. And the fact that it's a Sanskrit word meaning action is makes perfect sense for why you chose it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the company's four pronged model. 
So we're talking R&D, therapeutics, manufacturing and technology, you know, designed to deliver what you're talking about, these new gene therapy products to a broader audience. Um, but I want to talk about gene therapy kind of broadly where we are today and sure. explain the why behind you and your partners and your co-founders, the need to develop an end-to-end -end organization that includes those four model, excuse me, the four pronged model, knowing where we are with gene therapy. Absolutely. So, you know, when we step back and look at what is it going to take to uh, actually move gene therapy to much broader patients, it really comes down to a few technical and operational challenges. I would say four that we really focus on. Uh, the first and foremost of those is manufacturing. This is still one of the most complex technology modalities ever in medicine. It's why these are the most expensive medicines in the history of medicine. And so we need to tackle that problem head on. It's not just a question of capacity. It also has to do with quality of product, scale of product and cost of production. So that's you know one key barrier. The second is funding and access to capital. Uh, this is a very capital intensive area of drug development and it requires significant amounts of capital to overcome many of the technical challenges that will present themselves in the course of developing a product. It's just a matter of when, it's not a matter of if. And so you need to have capital that allows you to be patient and continue to invest in your development. And many companies in this space have unfortunately been chronically undercapitalized, which has been a challenge to actually see those products through to patients. So that's the second. Uh, the third is expertise. So this is still a young field, all things considered. We're still in the early innings compared to a field like monoclonal antibodies. And so there aren't yet infinite pools of expertise to draw from. And what we have focused on Korea is actually consolidating much of that expertise from many of the first generation and pioneering gene therapy companies to think about how we can apply those learnings, successes and failures to the next wave of gene therapies. And I think the combination of the first three has frankly led to you know, less than optimal execution. I'm just to be honest about, you know, where we have been as a field, there have been a number of, um, you know, misfirings that I think we can hopefully deliver a, a next wave of products that move along more smoothly into and through the clinic. So those are the main operational technical challenges. And what we sought to build at CREA was a fully integrated machine. We actually call it our gene therapy machine that is comprised of really three core pillars that you know get to the four areas you talked about. But those three core pillars are in manufacturing, in research biology, and in computational biology. And starting with manufacturing, we have a large manufacturing operation in Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. That's actually where we have a very large footprint of the company in RTP. We have our own uh, large GMP facility there, our ability to make our own products across multiple scales from very small scale up to very large scale. We have a 3000 liter bioreactor actually installed in that facility. We can fill finish our own products. We can do many iterative rounds of process development to characterize the process and the product early on in the life cycle. And that ties to the second core pillar, which is research biology, because we make a very thoughtful integrated decision when it comes to candidate selection and design. Manufacturability is one of the core parameters that guides how we select our candidates. And so we're able to, because we contain all of this in one roof, actually incorporate and embed manufacturability into construct design. And the third piece is computational biology, which is 
that we are generating just enormous volumes of data across different parts of our business, research, manufacturing, and otherwise also pulling in data that's publicly available in the field. And we have a team that is dedicated to next generation sequencing, machine learning, and really advanced math and computational data analytics to design various algorithms that can both improve manufacturing and improve the performance of our products. So I think having all of those in one company and also the capital to support this mission what is what allows us to get over those technical and operational challenges that I described. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I'm actually glad you brought up not only computational biology, but machine learning, uh, your manufacturing facility in North Carolina, which we're also going to get to in just a little bit. Um, before we do, talk us a little bit through your pipeline. Sure. So we have a pipeline focused on three core therapeutic areas. That's in metabolic disease, ophthalmology, and neurology. That pipeline has been built through a combination of internal R&D utilizing that engine as well as business development. Business development being company acquisitions, licensing, partnerships with academic groups and companies. And so in uh, metabolic disease, our lead program is in diabetes, starting with type one, but expanding eventually to type two. Um, so we're very excited about that program. In ophthalmology, our lead program is in geographic atrophy, uh, which uh, is an area where we saw the first approved uh, small molecule gene, uh, small molecule approach uh, just a few weeks ago. We hope to deliver a gene therapy one and done uh, product for those patients. And our third therapeutic area is in neurology, the lead indications are for trigeminal neuralgia and epilepsy, so focal neuronal hyperactivity disorders. And this pipeline was built through an acquisition that we announced actually a few months ago, the acquisition of Redpin Therapeutics, which was a leader in the chemogenetic space in neurology. So we're excited about that pipeline. We have some other therapeutic areas which we haven't disclosed that are at various earlier stages of development. Our ultimate ambition is to deliver gene therapies across all of these different therapeutic areas but all of them leveraging the same common core infrastructure in manufacturing, research, and computational biology. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about specifically manufacturing, of course, within yeah. Korea, but before we do, I'd love to get your professional opinion on, you know, at the top of our call, you talked about the fact that obviously manufacturing has been and continues to be a very complex portion of the entire field. So what I want to hear from you is what do you think in your professional opinion, have you witnessed to be the major hurdles facing gene therapy manufacturing? So I think there's a few hurdles. One is scale. So, you know, thinking about gene therapies at an industrial scale rather than an academic scale, this is a field that is really needs to emerge from the realm of academic development to scale and industrialization. And so that's a limitation because it drives low, low scale actually drives high cost. It drives a lack of consistency in production and challenges in the quality of the product that you produce. So I think scale is a major challenge. The second is the quality of the product itself. So, you know, this is a trite phrase and everyone's heard it in different gene therapy settings, but the process really defines the product. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by that is that the process parameters as it relates to uh, you know, the potency of the product, the purity of the product, those actually define uh, the clinical performance of that product in the patient. So, you know, many of the failures that we've probably seen over the time of gene therapy have had as a root cause analysis, maybe this will be published in the future as we have more data sets, 
problems in manufacturing that led to a higher than needed dose because you're dosing a lot of empty capsids, let's say, or an impure product that drove an immune response in patients or a uh, perhaps not a potent enough product. So that's where the manufacturing process uh, parameters actually define the, the product. And that's why um, that's such an important area of investing in gene therapy, actual process development, process science, product characterization. And the third sort of pillar, I would say, in manufacturing that bucket is analytical characterization. So one of the challenges is that, you know, as a field, we have scaled manufacturing to very late phases of development and then realized and understood things about our product that were less than ideal. And that's because we applied sophisticated analytical methods at later phases of development. Our goal at CREA is actually to bring that same sophistication of product characterization even earlier and earlier in product development up to the very smallest scale of manufacturing when we're still screening multiple candidates in parallel. And if we can have that sort of visibility on process performance, product purity profile, packaging efficiency, et cetera, very, very early on in development, we can actually do something with that information. We can choose a different uh, candidate. We can you know, make changes to the process or the product design. So I think those are sort of three categories, I would say, is just to summarize, you know, scale of manufacturing, quality of process, and analytical characterization. Sure. And I, I suspect that all three of those are in part answer to my next question for you, which is, why did you choose to do manufacturing in-house? You're, you're in Palo Alto, your manufacturing yeah. facilities in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, you know, talk to us about the why behind it. And, you know, what lessons have you learned to date regarding in-house manufacturing? What would you have done differently? What, what is going really well? Um, yeah. Because there are plenty of listeners who are either going through or are considering the same thing. So I'd love to hear from your uh, perspective, you know, the good, the bad, and the indifferent of how this is going so far. Yeah, I mean, so this was core to our decision. We actually made that investment uh, when we were just five or six employees at the company, even before our Series A was completed, right? So it was a gamble to do that. Uh, but, you know, I think if you were to ask anyone in the gene therapy space, is it preferred to have your own manufacturing or to rely on someone else for manufacturing? I think I would venture to guess 100% of your listeners would say it's better to have it controlled in-house. So there's no question about that. The challenge is, costs a lot of money, uh, you know, so that's one thing. And the second thing is it just requires a critical mass of expertise, which is difficult to accumulate. That, that as I, one of the points I mentioned earlier, there aren't infinite pools of talent yet in this space because it's still early. And so not every company can sustain its own in-house uh, you know, gene therapy manufacturing operation. Even if, if you were to sketch it out on a blank piece of paper, that's how you would want to build a company if you had all the money in the world, all the talent in the world. So I think setting that to one side, you know, learnings that we've sort of accrued by having our own manufacturing have really contributed to our ability to move faster across products. So the learnings that come from one manufacturing process for one particular product in our pipeline, that uh, applies across products in completely orthogonal therapeutic areas. So process performance, productivity, scale challenges, even things that relate to the vector design in metabolic disease, let's say, apply to ophthalmology, apply to neurology. It's agnostic of indication. And so we've been able to just move 
a lot faster to parallel prosecute multiple different development programs as opposed to the need to do this sequentially. Do product A, then product B, then product C, which you would have to do if you were reliant on a third-party manufacturer. So I think that's one uh, reason why I'm very happy we made that investment early on and have accrued that information and that data. And now we're sort of at a point where we're able to run this machine very efficiently because we control that. You know, when you think about reliance on a third-party manufacturer, I think the challenge is a lot of that data is not coming back in. So while they may be manufacturing products across many different companies, you know, they're not really incentivized or tasked with uh, making significant improvements in process. Their job is to deliver you product. And so they'll deliver it on process A, process B, but that's not really shared with you uh, and feeding back into your R&D process. So I think those are some of the, you know, benefits that we've seen. Uh, the, the challenge, if anything, is really uh, what I described. I think uh, you know, securing the capital is a challenge. We're fortunate that we have investors who believe in that as a core pillar of our mission. And then securing the talent is a challenge. And I, I feel very fortunate that we have people who have you know, been in positions to recruit large teams and, and have you know, been through success and failures. People like my co-founder, you know, Fraser Wright, who is the CTO at Spark. Our chief manufacturing officer, Britt Petty, who was the chief technical officer at Abexis, you know, they have experiences at various stages of manufacturing product development that is immensely valuable to just running the company more efficiently. So, um, you know, we're in, a, we're in a fortunate position, but I think it's a necessary one to do what we're trying to do. Yeah, sure. Um, and I, I agree with you that I a, a lot of the uh, executives I speak to talk about the fact that having that having it in-house is the absolute preferable way to go if if it can be done um i want to talk a little bit about computational biology so early on you know we brought this up um how does computational biology factor into the therapies you are developing at korea so I think about computational biology, you know, very holistically, which is it is using computational tools to analyze large data sets that can just make your operation more efficient, full stop across the business. So there's many different plugins of our computational effort into what we're doing in this company. You know, first of all, we're generating very large volumes of data across the business. So, you know, we're uh, analyzing uh, probably one of the largest number of samples in the industry per week, just based on the breadth of our pipeline number of programs we're advancing and what we're controlling internally. So there's a lot of data that is coming in uh, across, you know, manufacturing batch runs, uh, you know, different uh, candidate selection experiments. And so how do you internalize that data to do something useful with it? Well, there's a computational piece to that, including with next-gen sequencing. The second is how can we actually utilize computational biology to design better products. So, you know, we have a number of insights that we've accumulated over the course of our experience here, but also the field has accumulated more generally as to what are the drivers of product um, performance. And we have designed a number of algorithms that can actually uh, deliver products that we think perform much better biologically in patients and in development. And so that's a big focus of ours is algorithmically enhanced product engineering. And you know, I think the third piece is thinking about computational biology as a tool that is available for problems that may emerge. So 
there are various technical challenges that will inevitably emerge in the course of developing gene therapy. You know, we have the resources to be able to jump on those problems as and when they emerge. And I think that is sort of an in-house capability for problem solving that is probably underappreciated without necessarily having an a priori goal to every aspect of what that team does. And so we're able to, you know, wrap a computational mindset around any product problem or manufacturing problem or technical problem that emerges, even frankly, business operational problems. So I I think that is something where, um, you know, we see the value of what computational capability more generally can deliver. Okay. Thank you. Uh, When it comes to talking to the cell and gene, the podcast listeners, and what would you say to them as maybe their top one, two things regarding computational biology that they should absolutely extract from this discussion to put toward their own efforts? Yeah, I mean, I would say one is that this is a very engineerable product modality. So one of the nice things about gene therapy is that it's very, it is an engineerable product. We're not talking about synthetic chemistry where there is a, a whole layer of how the body metabolizes the product, how it has different receptor binding properties that need to be characterized. That to me is a little bit more of a black box problem. There are companies trying to solve that in a different space. This is not as complex as that. So these are really engineerable products that can have very reliable translation from how they perform in vitro to in vivo to in humans. And that is because at the end of the day, we're talking about protein expression. And and so if you start from an engineering first principle, you can use various computational tools to engineer the product better. Um, And then the second thing is the big takeaway is just large volumes of data. And, you know, in the course of developing a gene therapy, if you want to, let's say, parallel screen 50 candidates for a given product, which we've done, and we've exceeded that for some of our products, screening, you know, dozens of different candidates and running each of those through manufacturability assessments, uh, you know, potency screening assessments, uh, you know, expression level assessments, packaging efficiency, whatever. There is a panel that is generated that creates, uh, you know, millions of data points and being prepared to analyze those data sets and make the right decisions for the product does require a different level of sophistication than just staring at numbers on a PowerPoint. So I, I think that is um, just a learning that we can embrace with gene therapy that it's engineerable and that we have discrete data sets that can be very informative to how we actually build better products. Good. Okay. Um, and one kind of final question for you with, you know, we're, we're this year we're on the cusp of likely more than a dozen FDA approved therapies. Yeah. Um, you know, all things go as, as planned, hopefully uh, from your perspective, what, do you feel is the near-term future of gene therapy? Yeah, I mean, it's an exciting time. I think we have finally um, overcome, you know, the first hill, which is delivering products to patients that work. I think everyone should be really excited, Um, you know, huge um, appreciation for the companies that really broke through and delivered those first set of products. And, you know, we'll be looking at the commercial launches of these products. I think that's a near-term question as to how these products are commercialized, because there's going to be questions from physicians and patients who aren't necessarily familiar with gene therapy. It's not in the everyday you know, vernacular of what gene therapy even is. 
right? So there's going to be a huge amount of education that's required. Uh, I think the companies that are launching these products are prepared to take on that commercial and educational lift. Uh, you know, but what does the uptake look like? What does the you know pricing paradigm look like for these products? Some of those prices have been announced, and there is sticker shock to how those prices are received. But the value they deliver to patients is enormous. So I think that's something that you know we're going to be watching closely, and we're rooting for the companies that are launching these products to do so successfully. I think it will be a huge win for the field. Um, you know, I, I think that the FDA previously had said by 2025 they'd expect expected you know, 10 to 20 approved cell gene therapy products a year. I think Scott Gottlieb had mentioned that. And so we're excited for that as a potential possibility in the next few years, whether it's 2025 or shortly thereafter. Um, if I take a sort of three to five year outlook on where gene therapy will hopefully go, assuming successful uptake among patients, good understanding of gene therapy, at least among certain providers, good sort of payer receptivity to how gene therapy sort of reimbursed, um, you know, I think the next step is really what Korea is hoping to deliver and companies like us, which is uh, expanding gene therapy to tackle a broader universe of diseases and really to make that next leap, which is to make gene therapy a part of mainstream medicine. And we talk about this a lot in, you know, amongst my colleagues uh, who've been in this field for a long time, uh, even in other companies, monoclonal antibodies went through this similar time course 20, 30 years ago, where the first set of approved MABs were a little bit unknown. Uh, there was uh, a lot of questions about how those would be taken up by doctors and patients and just look at where monoclonal antibodies now uh, are in, in 2023, which is a part of, um, you know, part of standard of care medicine. In, re in, re in part of your response, you mentioned that uh, as gene therapy becomes more mainstream, physicians and patients will need to be educated on not only the sector at large and what's going on, but the therapies as they're approved and, you know, hopefully down the road, more and more therapies, you know, will continue to be approved. But there is an education that goes into you know, that physicians and patients need. And you're right. What I was saying is that, you know, you and I and people in this industry talk about it every day, but not everybody does. And so yeah. what does that education beyond, you know, patient advocacy groups and, um, you know, conferences and all of that, what does that education actually look like so that this does become more mainstream to the general public? It's a great question. And I think there's a way to do it. I think we should take comfort in the fact that it can be done and look no further than mRNA. Right. You know, uh, two, three years ago, no one, I'm sure no one in our families or friends had heard of mRNA. And now, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world have taken it. So it can be done uh, if the benefit is very demonstrable to patients and physicians understand it. And I think it comes back down to, you know, getting to the fundamentals of what make gene therapy so exciting. You're talking about one-time therapies, for a potential lifetime of transformational benefit or cure. There are not many medicines that can do that. Maybe right. certain antibiotics can do that for infectious diseases. We're not there. We're talking about the realm of cures or life-changing treatments with one-time therapy. So anchoring back to what matters to the patient, what matters to physicians treating the patients, you know, what matters to their families, it really is about, you know, highlighting what those benefits are with this technology modality. And the fact that gene therapy is one of the only ways to actually derive that type of benefit. So I'm actually very confident that people will, something's going on above us on, on the ceiling here, but 
construction. But I'm very confident that uh, you know gene therapies will be well received if uh, you know if that type of benefit is actually understood by the patients and physicians and families making these decisions. Yeah, and that's a really good point to liken it to mRNA, uh, you know, which is now a household name. Exactly. Uh, thanks exactly. thanks to you know certainly the the COVID vaccine. So. Yeah. Um, so you're right. It is it is absolutely possible, and 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 the day will come. I'm sure. Um, all right. Well, that that formally kind of wraps up the that wraps up the formal end of our of our discussion here. But uh, at the end of the podcast, I like to also you know dig a little bit deeper into who my guests are when they're not uh, making life saving therapies. So my question for you is: What are your main hobbies and interests that you like to do when you're not at Korea? You know, helping to save lives. Yeah, you know, and I find it helpful sometimes to anchor on something else. And, um, you know, my wife and I love to go for hikes. Uh, you know, we're, we're big into that. You know, it's a California thing to do. Uh, so really enjoy that. Uh, I play a lot of tennis, actually. So I used to be a very competitive tennis player. And I've, I've tried to tap back into that competition and, you know, play you know, tennis tournaments out here in the Bay Area. I've got one this weekend, actually. And, um, you know, made a lot of friends with uh, a lot of high school juniors and seniors looking to just, you know, play some competitive tennis. So uh, it's been uh, it's been fun just, um, you know, having something else to anchor to that, you know, I'm, I'm competitive about, deeply passionate about and, you know, do it as much as I can. Absolutely. That's so exciting. And I think, um, you know, and tennis is a great sport to uh no matter if you if you do it recreationally or certainly competitively yeah. like you are. Um, I have not played much tennis in my time, but I have recently taken a pickleball, which I thought oh, was man. a lot like tennis, <laughs> and it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's a very, uh, very controversial subject amongst tennis purists on the entry of pickleball and invasion of our sport. But it's uh, not. I would, I would argue, I went in absolutely thinking this has got to be a lot like tennis, and and. Yeah you know, swinging for the fences and it's really not. So, <laughs> totally um, different. No. Totally different. Uh, and yeah. uh, I think if, you know, it's a totally different world, but it's kind of all I can compare at the time, but it's, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, there's something that is really anchoring about not having time to think about anything else. As you can imagine, it's hard to take my mind off of work sometimes. And when you're playing tennis, it's one of the only things that I feel that, you know, you have to respond in the moment to the ball coming right at you. So I, I really enjoy that opportunity to, you know, go in super deep on something else that I'm a hundred percent focused on in that particular moment in time. A hundred percent. It's a very technical yeah. game. So totally, totally. Uh, it really is. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're able to do that and that your wife, you and your wife enjoy it and that you're even playing with, and it sounds like probably mentoring the students that you work with, that you play with. Um, yeah you know, who can probably learn a thing or two from, from you. So that's good. Well, it's fun. Yeah, I, I, I learned from them. They're, you know, training hours a day and, you know, share whatever tips I can offer them as, uh, you know, older buck in, uh, <laughs> on the court. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. All right, listeners. Well, that wraps up this episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast. Thanks to Kriya Therapeutics, Dr. Shankar Ramaswamy, again, for joining me today. Shankar, this was wonderful. Thank you for your time and insight. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Please visit cellandgene.com, register for our newsletter, subscribe to Cell and Gene, the podcast, and feel free to reach out to me directly with any topics you'd like us to cover in more detail. And we'll talk to you soon.